Hey y'all, welcome to part two of episode one of The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast for one and all. So this is roughly the second half of a discussion between our brave heroes about Plato's The Apology, The Unexamined Life. Is it worth living? Should you die now? If you haven't heard part one, you should go get that right now from partiallyexaminedlife.com. Unless, of course, you are the kind of person that likes jumping in in the middle of a discussion when you have no idea what's going on and then maybe interjecting something random to try to be funny and everybody turns and looks at you and like, what, who is this person? Jesus Christ. You know, obviously, living the examined life in the, in the philosophical sense doesn't, it's not going to make you saner, it's not going to get rid of your alcoholism. In fact, sometimes I felt wandering around the halls of the philosophy department there, I thought I was in an insane asylum sometimes. <laughs> and then at the political level, obviously, it's not going to get rid of evil. In other words, it, there's little evidence that examination, you know, Germany had a great philosophical tradition. It was at a, its cultural heights right before the Nazis took over. I mean, that that's sort of the preeminent example of that kind of disappointing relationship between intellectual life, let's say, and the political. And then personally, I had this experience with St. John's, which was sort of, now I call it a Heideggerian cult, because... St. John's is where Wes went to school, and when I was in grad school with him, he was talking about his undergrad experience with St. John's with reverence, like, every five minutes, and how awesome it is. Exactly. And now, actually, my brother-in-law works there, and, and also says it's awesome, so... It is awesome, and maybe this is my attempt to get over not being able to become a professor there, but uh, it's uh, there are disappointing elements in the sense that it's wonderful. The idea of being sort of insulated from the world in the way that you are at St. John's, even more so than the ordinary ivory tower experience. St. John's but that, features, that, let, let me just give some yeah, background again. St. John's features small classes. Everybody knows each other. Everybody takes everything together. It's a great, a great book-centered program, so it's, uh, you know, you really... And it's all based on discussion. So the professors, what are they actually called? Tutors. Tutors. Kind of stay out of the way and uh, you know guide things when necessary, but really expect the participants to come up with discussion on the various readings and musical scores and other things that they go into on their own. And Wes thought this was far superior to anything that we were involved <laughs> in when at the University of Texas as teaching assistants and such. That's a long time ago, man. So, yeah, that kind of environment at St. John's. But the other element of it, the reason why I call it a Heideggerian cult, is because you treated every text with this mystical reverence. It was, you know, <laughs> um, and it was it was really not good in some ways. It was hard to be productive. It was hard to write about these things or, you know, when you had this sort of fear and trembling induced by awe about all of it. So, okay. I'm just going to some that ways, I count that sorry. as a, a name drop, by the way. What? Fear and trembling. Oh, okay. All right. Just say uh, fear. Don't talk about Marty. <laughs> don't talk about Marty fear that way. <laughs> but uh, I guess the disappointment comes when I go back and I talk to professors there now, and I think they say, "What are you doing?" Oh, communications consultant, and you feel you see the sort of look of disappointment and feel the disdain and the, you know and then you see these you know what fuck them yeah i saw i saw our former chair of the philosophy department in like lowe's not too long ago <laughs> i mean that that guy had to buy paneling to fix his house just like everybody you know i yeah 
Yeah, I'm. Yeah, and I think the other part of it is the political part, which is St. John's is sort of the darling of the conservative educational movement, even though it's not some like right wingers are attracted to the school. But there's enough association, and I saw they they had a when my little so my younger siblings went to St. John's as well, and when one of them was graduating, they had this right winger give this ridiculous speech and i thought you know these people here are really clueless it's this disengagement from the political is dangerous so far from leading to better decisions whether personally or politically this idea of retreating can actually make it worse so that's okay that's the overall point so i feel strongly that i need to say something here about this right yeah so the first thing is let's take note of the fact that socrates was not working from any texts right so right. to some extent, one of the, and I totally agree with you, like I love – there's a certain kind of guilty pleasure in revering a text that way. And that's, right. something that's, that's something that's not Heideggerian in me, but it's Jewish, right? That there's this Jewish <laughs> reverence for the text and hermeneutics and kind of the rabbinical pouring over of the same words over and over again to kind of extract meaning out of it. That's, that's, you really want to say Maimonidean, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I see. I feel bad enough that I use the word rabbinic. Um, <laughs> it's almost Tolkien-esque. <laughs> but his point is, right, it's about discourse. So there's a certain level at which what he's saying is the examined life is an interaction. It's an active dialogue with another person or with multiple people. And so in, a, in essence, this is a very strong political statement about – a democratic engagement of people and individuals and ideas and so forth and kind of a healthy, open debate and dialogue, right? So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's part of it. And I agree with you that reverence for the text can be it's – a, it's a fetish that can be fun, right? There are fetishes yeah. that are okay. But uh, when it begins imbued with a certain amount of value that then turns the people that do it into arrogant pricks, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a big yeah. problem. Why is and that the, a problem? I don't. I, I like arrogant pricks. Yeah, well, no, I'm just saying it's it's a problem. Arrogant pricks make the it, world go round. It's it's a problem when Wes goes back to campus and gets treated poorly. <laughs> let's put it that way. But um, or when I know, show up at UT and I'm an arrogant prick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I should I should say in in defense of St. John's, at least of my brother-in-law who works there, that he's taking a sabbatical and in his time off, he is a communication consultant with us at the same job that we have that Wes has. So. Yeah, so not that, all St. John's profs think so, that way. And, and this is the thing. So what happened to the fact that uh, you know, Socrates was a soldier, right? I mean, there's this right. – and then we, you have later on like the concept of like say a renaissance man, right? Somebody who can do a little bit of everything, who's, who's able to engage in this kind of activity but can also milk a cow and run a business and, I don't know, fortify a castle, right? I mean there's, there's something about positioning this kind of activity – against other kinds of activity or to the exclusion of other kinds of activity that I just find inherently problematic. And that I can buy into an idea that this is an essential part of a fulfilling full life and that people who never take the time to engage another human being in order to have a dialogue about things, you know, and then you can have the discussion about what sorts of things should you be dialoguing about. That's a whole nother level. But people who don't do that, I can say, yes, if you, if you have no productive, active, engagement, you know, about meaningful subject matter with other people, then there is something severely missing in your life. I would never Uh, say something as dramatic as it's not worth living because that's not, I don't think that's fair, but. I will go farther than that to say that I I do like the idea of 
trying to fundamentally evaluate your basic assumptions about everything. You know, so the people I, I, I taught philosophy at a community college a few times uh, over the past few years. And then before that was was a teaching assistant. And, and a lot of the, the people there. So, OK, so they're for one class, even if it's a required class, they are engaging in this reflective behavior. But it's so clear that even if they're going through the motions and trying to argue some of this stuff, which was which was rare enough, but, you know, did happen that the amount of people who would check their assumptions at the door, even if you can't ultimately do that, but, you know, just try to make some kind of fundamental. And this was an ethics class that I was teaching at the community college for the most part. You know, so it was a matter of, okay, maybe I'll jump through some of these hoops and read some of these guys that you're asking me and maybe learn some new arguments for particular points, maybe even change my mind about some particular issue, though that was, again, very rare. The idea of fundamentally questioning your any of your assumptions is just foreign to most folks. And and I think it makes you, yeah, I'll I'll say it makes you a better person to have done that at some point. Even if it's just pretend and we really can't fundamentally question a lot of, you know, the very basic stuff that goes on in any meaningful way. And as soon as you leave the classroom, then, you, you know, the, the reality of the assumptions that you have in you about what is reality and what is the good and all that kind of stuff just seeps back in. At least going through that pretend experience is hugely valuable, I would say, and makes you a yeah. much more interesting person to be around. And yeah, and yeah just to play devil's advocate here, we all know lots of clever people or brilliant people who... Could we say they're better people for being brilliant? You know, sometimes they're worse people for that. Um, well, yeah, I was going to say, let me make the argument in favor of my theory about engagement with other people too, right? I mean, I've had this experience, so I don't have kids. And Mark, you do. And Wes, I, I think you said you don't, right? Right. So there's a sense in which people, a lot of times you find people who have families or who have kids. The big deal, like management speak kind of cliches in the in the business world is about work life it used to be called work life balance right and then they they changed it to work life effectiveness because you don't want to balance work in life because you spend more time at work than you do in life if you subtract sleeping um so they didn't want to suggest that you just only spend four hours a day at work or whatever it was but um you know there's which is the correct response but (laughs) Um, you know, I used to kill myself for my job and had no no sense of perspective, right? And then I'd see people who had kids and it was like, eh, you know, this is a paycheck, blah, blah, blah. I've got these other things. And I always kind of sort of envied them and said, geez, you know, there are people that really have a sense of what's important and perspective and all that. And you can kind of imagine the circumstance of like when you have a family to some extent, you're kind of forced into this dialogic relationship with this other human being that – forces you to examine things. And what I mean by that is you may think that your children are going to turn out a certain way and you may try to shape and educate and train them, but they're going to teach you things that you didn't and make you see the world in a way you didn't think you would. And then more importantly, when they get older, they're going to challenge a lot of the things that, you know, that every parent of a standard heterosexual uh, monogamous relationship that has a child who's gay has to ask themselves some tough questions, right? It's not about the nature of matter or being or essence or identity, but, you know, it comes up, right? And then you have people like me, and I do, you know, I'm involved in community activities, and one of them is an organization here in Austin that helps offenders reintegrate into the community, right? And so it's this constant when I'm telling the mission of my organization to other people or I'm trying to get them to spend money on us or whatever, you know, it's like, well, hmm, I have to convince people that, 
individuals can change and that societal influences. And I have to challenge their assumptions if they have any at all. A lot of people don't, you know, we, this came up in a subject recently. I had a conversation with uh, a, a very good friend of mine about the death penalty. And he was like, well, you know, I guess I'm kind of for it, but I don't really think about it every day. It doesn't affect my life, right? It's not something that's present in my life. But in kind of my context now, this is a really central theme, like virtue, you know, is for, and that sort of thing. And so it's important for me to get people to examine their assumptions about that particular thing. And, you know, his, his, what I kind of learned was he was open to the idea. He's somebody who I consider to be very reflective, but, you know, it's not something that came up every day. He wasn't devoting energy every day to kind of examining that particular thing. So I, I think there are ways in which you can do this and there are contexts and, and experiences and so forth in which this happens. And a lot of them seem to have to do with just being around and exposed to a diversity of people that have different sorts of experiences. And, you know, if I take anything away from the text to kind of, you know, bring it back to that, it's unfortunately it was a very small enclosed community and he was kind of focused on, he had a very rhetorical style that was very aggressive and, and confrontational. But I mean, that's essentially what he's doing, right? It's like, how much more interesting would the, would the Socratic dialogues be if you did get to see some of these other types of people voice them, you know, talk about their, about their positions and, and work through their assumptions and so forth. Okay. Slash rant. No, good. Good. I like, I, I think those, I mean, I was just thinking how great you are. <laughs> how, now, uh, how much but, you've been improved by self-examination. No, go ahead, Mark. <laughs> I guess my, my assumption was for a long time, and this is, you know, this is where the sort of liberal, the challenge that academics are liberally biased and all that stuff. So, some of it, I think, comes from the idea that if you're doing any sort of contemplation, then of course you're, you know, willing to question uh, cultural traditions, and so that makes you a liberal right then and there. You know, it's it's only been if 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 you're thinking I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go into a political rant here. I'm sure we'll do that in other podcasts, but you know, I, I think one of our aims here should not be, you know, to completely alienate folks of the conservative persuasion. But it, it at least, you know, was my experience to a certain point that sort of anybody who had, you know, who I considered a thinker at all would, you know, be fundamentally liberal in some basic ways. It doesn't mean on every issue or anything. But then, yeah. hey, you run across somebody who's like, you know, a guy in the undergrad philosophy department who's an Orthodox Jew. And he's extremely reflective and extremely, you know, does all the same sorts of uh, uh, self-reflection and, and aggressive social uh, evaluating of, of uh, fundamental assumptions, but yet, you know, will se seems to have, I guess, to put it unkindly, the way I, I put it when I was, you know, thinking of this particular case, that he had the answers already spelled out in advance to a lot of a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. I guess I'm, I feel charitable of now to say that I think there are some very conservative people or people who end up doing going, you know, with the traditional Moore's maybe not for the same reasons or maybe that's because the traditional folks don't often give reasons for for you know that most people buy them but end up in a very conservative position yet are very thoughtful and at least try to the same extent that I do to uh you know question these fundamental assumptions they just find that logically it leads them back to where that where they were yeah i think just to give the uh the flip side of that is i think see i wonder how many people even of my political persuasion are really 
that reflective about it. I think um, for those people who, for instance, you know, let's say agree that gay marriage should be legal or um, sure, or go with that. Share other political views that I have. I think you know, I doubt that many of them have really thought about it. That's that's its own dogma. And then you know, it's here's another story. When I I, I went to some protests against the Iraq War right before it happened in 2003. And I honestly felt uncomfortable because I felt uncomfortable with the simplistic slogans on signs. I, you know, talking to, I think there was a feeling of holier than thouness among people. So, so my general experience is that even, even for liberals, it's not, um, I don't, I don't think often those, there's a lot of dogma and positions aren't, aren't necessarily thought through. Um, I, and the, the other, yeah, go ahead. I, I guess what I hear, what I'm hearing you saying is that kind of a combination of the two of you is that whatever your political persuasion, you kind of have you, our 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 kind of feeling as a as a group here is that you have to be willing to 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 ask the question of anything. Like if there are certain areas that are off limits, that that's problematic. Right. Even if you end up coming back to those positions, that's okay. But at some point in time, you have to at least be willing to call those into question if you're going to go through the process. Sure. Like just to throw out an example that we're not going to talk about in the concept of, of human rights, philosophically is actually a really shaky, you know, where do these rights come from? How are they written in the universe? Where does it, you know, it, it's something that begs to be discussed philosophically. And, and I have no problem pursuing, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue a political course that, that agrees with a lot of, you know, what people make as human rights claims, but to really get, you know, find out whether human rights are going to apply in a specific case or not, you'd have to be much more self-reflective about about the fundamental concept of what they are. Yeah, and I think you may not find any real foundation there. So at, the, at bottom, it may just be, you know, I think especially with regard to political and moral values, you, you have basic foundational premises there that you believe and you can't justify them. You just have to be willing to fight for them. But I think in the case of more complex decisions, so for instance, when I was I was in Maine building wooden boats and it was kind of a hippie commune that I was living at, and despite being very liberal, I felt, I always felt this sort of instinct to be devil's advocate because I felt people were very unreflective, and I also felt like you would get in big trouble if you questioned the dogma. So, So I remember, for instance... And I felt very conflicted about the Iraq war because I was actually, it was something I had kept track of Iraq, you know, since the 1992 war. And I knew that sanctions had had a terrible effect. And I thought, well, maybe it is better to get rid of Hussein. Maybe, you know, in the end, I ended up opposing it and going to protests. But when I brought up that point, of course, it was taboo. And I, I was quickly associated with, oh, you're all about the Iraq war now. And At the I rally to... when Wes jumped on stage and started screaming <laughs> to the 4,000 people. Support I... our troops. <laughs> started trying to have a Socratic dialogue with them. <laughs> Didn't go over well. So I think, uh, just to segue that, just to give one more, I think the the other problem here is that people are, you know, you might say, and just to bring it back to the the sort of psychological side of this is, you know, one might say, well, people are really driven by something more fundamental than anything that can be tackled by reasoning about things. So, you know, whether you want to talk about unconscious 
wishes and or basic instincts and those sorts of things. So the question is how how much does being able to engage in in those dialogues help right. with that? Um, how much does anyway. self reflection actually get you? Yep. No, I think that's you've. There's a bunch of really interesting points in there, and um, you know, one one is kind of is is the topic key? Is is examining and being reflective and having dialogue? Is it is it does it really depend on what the thing's about? Right. So, and then the other question is, you know, in terms of individual human capacity for doing this, right? So. Let's say, for example, yeah. uh, to talk about your example of the Iraq war, right? You know, what if I just said, look, I'm not smart enough and I don't have enough time and I don't have access to enough information right. to to come up with a, a strong, reasoned point a position. But 20 people I know are on this side who I respect, right, Who and who I know do the research and think through it. And so if they say it's okay, that's good enough for me, right? Sort of – it's almost like um, yep. uh, proxy, right? And so you, you've sort of said, well, by default, <laughs> I'm doing the reasoning because I'm trusting somebody who I know does the reasoning, right? And I think part of the assertion here is that that's not okay. Like you need to go through the process yourself, right? That's, that's kind of part of the assumption. But the other thing is kind of like it's got to be about something that's important, and so I think there's there's a certain extent to which we have to kind of take that into account when you when you talk about this. Uh, yeah. Because, because I certainly there are certain you know in terms of of things like ec- certain kinds of economic plans and and certain other things where I I have authoritative sources that I trust and I go and I read what they have to say and I don't research the issues myself and I have yeah, to kind I, of take a stand there. I was just about to bring that up because it's with the whole bank bailout thing for instance i there's simply no way to know and i don't even if i think we were very educated economists there's no way to say for sure what the right thing to do for instance in this recently with um you know the economic downturn whether or not to give aig billions of dollars and so on and so forth i can say that you know i reading People who I respected, you know, writers for the New York Times, let's say, or economists that I had heard of before, the fact that they opposed it, you know, influenced me. So all I could say was, well, I really don't know, but based on this little information, that's I, I can say that I didn't think it was necessarily a good idea to give all the banks this money, and that I'm pro-nationalizing the banks and so on and so forth. Now, of course, some people... Or, or many people you'll you'll see will act like it's a it's a sure thing, right? It's, you know, oh, it's a disgrace to to have given all that money, you know, and it's a big ripoff. So so maybe that's one value, the ability to say, you know, I think Seth, this is your point, that be able to say, really, fundamentally, I don't know. But I guess the the other thing I'm thinking about here is the so you let the politicians um, make the decisions for you, and you're a passive sheep because you say <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. We're talking about we're talking about you know, and talking about aligning yourself sure. with people who theoretically have the characteristics that you wish you and the access to information that you wish you had. But it begs the question, right? That you know maybe part of the process requires that you have somebody who can articulate all the issues that are involved, right? And all the the complex things that are involved. Because this is one of the things, right? When when Socrates is having these conversations, just to get back to this kind of concept of dialogue and all that, he's always able to come up with a perfect analogy, right? It's like, well, 
you know, if you were a horse trainer, you know, would you shoe the horse or would you let the horse run without shoes? And you're like, oh, right. I see how that explains the AIG bailout. You know, there's always this way of kind of relating things. But somebody has to understand the thing in the first place in order to be able to make the analogy, right? And so – Well, don't, don't you have to I'm understand saying, it to see whether it's a good analogy or not? Yeah, I suppose that's probably true, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I guess that's um, – you know, that I, I feel, still feel like maybe there's a subset of, of topics that somehow relate to this concept of good and right action and virtue and all that, that really are a candidate for the examination. And like, you know, it's like, okay, all right, if you don't examine what the bailout is, you're not, you, you, that's not part of the unexamined life. That doesn't put you right, in that sure. category. But if, but if you right. never ask yourself what the right way is to treat another human being, then you definitely have issues, right? I feel like there's got to be some right. criteria there. To... I was just about to say something similar, Seth. I think um, it's interesting because, yeah, we're talking about political decisions, for instance, when, you know, Socrates himself said, well, I don't, you know, I don't have anything to do with politics and I don't have anything to do with the natural sciences, let's say. And those are areas where, the data has to come from outside oneself, and it's always there's always the question of the reliability, whether it's of the people you trust, or um, in a way, and it's something we can never be certain about. Whereas, again, for Socrates, it's the armchair element. It's this idea that you have immediate access to one's own psyche, and you can be reflective, and that there's a there's information there about you know that, that purely by reflecting, you can address the question of what it means to be a good human being. But on the other hand, it seems natural though, to ask about political questions and, and questions of personal, of personal virtue, because if we don't get to the point of action, then what does it mean to talk about being a good human being? Do you see what I'm saying? On, on the one hand, it, it seems to be Socrates seems to have cordoned himself off from the idea of action, and on the other hand, it's it's hard to say what it means to be a good human being unless you figure out a way for knowledge to be applied. He, he seems to have no problem translating in his personal case, in the in the excuses he gives for conduct, his principles of virtue, however unstated they may be. He just describes them as as a sort of a tinge on his conscience. It's the gods telling him, stopping him from doing inappropriate things. He doesn't seem to have any problem translating those things to to action. Um, whether right. you can say that stems out of his philosophy, I think that's the implication is that, uh, you know, it's not just that he's this special touched by an angel, uh, touched by the oracle into doing the right thing, that it's because of his contemplation that he has this conscience that is pulling at him and, and telling him what to what to not do in any case. So so it's like you were saying that politics, you have to know particulars, but as an armchair philosophy, you can figure out, he thinks, the general. And, and I'm pulling on. Right, Plato makes this much more explicit. Plato, you know, he thinks he's maybe giving conclusions that Socrates might agree with, but Socrates definitely didn't seem to, as far as the scholars are concerned, go into in, in the things he actually said. But, you know, so Plato has much broader cosmological ideas and theories about, you know, politics and ethics in general. These, uh, because it's, it's, it's all a matter that, it's not just that we have access to our own thoughts and our, you know, to reflect upon our own emotions, that we, we have access to these universals, that we can figure out, you know, the ideal of something. So the ideal for action is something we can all sit back and contemplate. And if we contemplate closely enough, 
and, and in this, it, I, the, the dialogue element doesn't even seem to have to be present in this, in this sort of view. Uh, you know, this is where Plato is compared to mystics and things that if you kind of get back far enough, this is why, you know, Christian, this is why Plato's write, writing survived through the, the Middle Ages when everybody was, uh, everybody in Europe was Christian, uh, is that they could see that, uh, you know, if you just sort of shut up and uh, let society stop telling you what to do, then we can all sit back and see God's perfection and reflect upon that as a way of getting principles and deriving action from that. Uh Mark, that's a really good point. I mean, I think we're going to end up, is it this kind of theme between this kind of reflective thought and kind of principled action, the the connection, if any, and what, is just going to come up over and over again. It's like that's, this actually might be one of the key issues about the examined or unexamined life is what's the point of doing it? I mean, can you actually get to the point where you can infer or accept or realize or believe or trust some kind of virtuous action by going through this process, right? And yet at the same time, you have to go through it because you can't simply assume that what other people tell you or what, you're, what you learn or what you read in a book or what society tells you is right action that you should go do either. It's kind of a right. weird... Yeah. And, and Mark, I actually have a different reading of the this, you know, when he talks about being told what not to do by the God, the God which in fact is, is one of the charges against him. He's in, in Pius because he talks about this daimon that tells him what to do. But I think, you know, elsewhere, it's, it, he compares that to be, you know, the poets being inspired and he calls it a form of madness. And so I think, oddly, and, you know, the, the, like a very typical sort of irony here he is talking about the importance of self-examination when he is driven in his own behavior, he claims to be driven in his own behavior by something ultimately irrational, which is this voice in his head. To, to go back to Seth's point, this, this question that's going to come up over and over again about contemplation versus action. Well, I mean, the voice in his head tells him he should obey his principles instead of selling them out to you know, get himself off the hook. I don't know. Well, that it says it no. It's when he's about to do are. something. It, it, when he's about to do something, it just says no if it's not right. the right. Right. And he talks about you know he got through the whole speech without the voice telling him no. That's the only way he knows. It's not. It's not because he's he's thought about some principle and applied it. Right? Well, he, I mean, he says in the dialogue, he says sort of in general, should you be willing to die for your die or or do the right thing? You know, that's the, the question. If it's a question of doing the right thing or dying, what should you do? Of course you should do the right thing. Um, yeah. So right there, I, you know, what I take this is going along with some principle he's come up with, which I guess I don't see, you know, if he's come across this abstract principle, for instance, that the unexamined life is not worth living, right? So that he needs to do philosophy. It's sort of, it's, a, it's not just a personal urge that he should, because he, he definitely thinks everybody else should be doing this. So I, I would say... He holds this as a principle. Even if he says he, he doesn't know anything, this is one of the principles he holds. And this is, this is where I think, I'm sure I will make this point in many a discussion, where ethics goes astray, really, in being ethics at all. Like, do you need principles in order to do the right thing at all? I mean, you might want to not call it the right thing, but it seems pretty clearly 
the arrogance that philosophers have that like, well, unless you've gone through the philosophical, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm getting into the, the philosopher's voice. It sounds like comic, <laughs> comic book guy's voice. Unless you've done the, the philosophical life, then, uh, you know, you're, you don't know your ass from a hole in the ground. And so you're not going to be doing the right thing. You know, there's a, there's a conceit there when actually being too contemplative maybe gets you attracted to these abstract principles that make you do very stupid things. So I would right. say, you know, from the modern perspective, what he is doing here in choosing to make himself a martyr is really stupid. What he's doing here in neglecting his family is really obviously wrong. Like these are things like you don't have to be if I'm a good family man, that is not because I have the principles of family. I believe in the principles of family. No, it's just because I am not an asshole. It's, it's because I love my family. You know, it's not. Why do you need a principle there at all? Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I'm trying to decide between just laughing hysterically and trying to, like, put some sort of, like, you know, contact sort of graphs around this. But um, Are you going to uh, – you're about to do a defense? You can, you can call me full of shit. That's okay. No, no, quite the opposite. I mean, I think okay. what you're saying is you have the – it's almost like you could say, look, Plato does not have the capacity for love. <laughs> And and you do, and that's really kind of the fatal flaw. But I I think what I realize is that the three of us are struggling against. So let me let me ask you this: in your experience with people who were not in academia or not in philosophical academia or what have you, they have no concept of the arrogance of philosophers and the arrogance of sort of academic philosophers like we do. Like we. I feel like we're all carrying around this like rage and, and we're, we're just spewing against Socrates in this time because he represents every department chair or professor who gave us a B, you know, or whatever, because he, he is, he's, is, he's exhibiting this, this kind of, he exhibits the arrogance of the intellectual that you might say is nowadays. But, you know, the truth is everybody who knows me that I came in contact with in kind of a standard business sense and a little, when I tell them I study philosophy, they're all like, ooh, yeah, I took a philosophy class you know, when I was a freshman. It was really hard, right? They have this kind of reverence right. for the activity, but they feel like they aren't up to it or I had to learn a trade and become – I had to learn something practical because I had to make money. In essence, you almost like feel like what they're saying is, man, I wish that I was in a situation where I could have spent time thinking about things and just thinking about things. I really envy you that luxury, but I had to go take accounting or I had to be a business major. And that's kind of what gets back to this whole thing about, oh, well, gee, it's lucky that the Athenians had slaves and there was this privileged class and all that. Was You had the luxury to do that. And so there's kind of the sense in which you say, like, can we, can we abstract this concept and generalize it to say that it is good for everybody to go through this process at least a little bit, sometime here and there and, and, and doses and what have you, you know, or... Devote yeah. ourselves to creating robot slaves so we can be in that position. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually, I, mean, I have a confession what, to. Uh -oh. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was or, just. You haven't finished your. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm done. I, I was going to say something about Facebook and Twitter and all those things. Technology making our lives worse and taking up more of our time instead of making it easier. But you make robots send out your twitters for you. <laughs> okay, let's get to technology next. Yeah, that's uh, if we still have time. But uh, in fact, I think we should do a whole podcast on. Yes on that another um, time on technology but uh my my confession is that i actually despite having played devil's advocate i and despite all my bitterness 
<laughs> towards academia. I admire the Socratic. I admire Socrates, and I admire the position and his arrogance. Although it definitely came across when I read the dialogue, which I, you know, and again, I didn't think it. I, I felt that way when I had read it in graduate school, and um, despite all that, I, I admire him, and I really empathize with the desire to retreat from the world and do things of no practical value whatsoever. And and again, with this I, very pure idea that the sort of contemplative life is for its own sake, is the best sort of life. It's, it's not because it's going to lead to better decisions about anything, but it's because when you're doing it at that moment, you're most human, let's say. Um, as arrogant as all the sounds, so, and and I honestly and I felt that way, especially at St. John's. You know, it was it's a quasi. So and here we get to the mysticism and the, it's it can be a quasi religious experience. So so there I said it. <laughs> now, listen, Wes, I I totally get what you're saying, but I think the key that I I keep coming back to is he is not talking about the contemplative life. I mean, he didn't retreat from the world; he retreated from things. He True. did not retreat from people. Right. And, and that's, that's a good point. I mean, that's the thing. When, when, you, you know, when you talk about that, I think of um, – who was it? Diogenes, the guy who lived in a jar buried in the ground, you know, and had the beggar dog and, <laughs> and that kind of – like that. And, and I used to really – speaking of admiring, I mean, I used to think that I always wanted to run through the streets holding a lantern looking for, you know, an honest man. But um, I, Well, I'm still talking about talking to other people. But, of course, I would never go around talking to uh, – Military people. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny because so. Mark, your uh, your depiction of him, and I struggle with that. I mean, part of me, and that's the way he was depicted. Ironically, uh, he talks about Aristophanes' depiction of him in the frogs. He's completely. I don't know if you guys have. Is this not? This isn't name dropping because it's mentioned in the dialogue. But if you read that, it, it you know it depicts him as the. The, it's the sort of stereotype of the philosopher who's looking up at the stars and so steps in the pothole. This ditzy, absent-minded professor uh, who's thinking about absurd things like, you know, how many angels can fit on the, the head of a needle and so on and so forth. It's that, I mean, I think we all have that, this sort of visceral reaction against the, the impracticality of it. Um, I, I like those people. That's all right. <laughs> you know, and then Aristophanes was actually a friend of Socrates, and they they would have uh, dinner together and shoot the shit. So orgies? I don't know. It's uh, the orgies together. He's probably too um, old. <laughs> yeah, Socrates yeah, taste for younger younger men. Uh, and I think it's telling though that he contrasts himself against that. You know, I mean, I really think he's trying to he's trying to create something here that's that's radically different. I'm just. I'll make that point. I'm done. I'm done talking about how the importance of. All right. We, with when we when we start to repeat ourselves, then I think that means that we've we've pretty much wrapped it up. Closing statements. Uh, mine. Uh, uh, Socrates. Good in the abstract, but probably a bastard. <laughs> um, Is this Wes? like the McLaughlin group? <laughs> yeah. Some sum up. <laughs> Wes. Sum up. <laughs> Socrates. Good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> The sum up for me is I I'm torn. I um I think the best life is just thinking about being conflicted about 
what the best life is. <laughs> anyway, so I'm torn about, I think this question of the, again, I think of it as the contemplative life or the life of, even if it means walking around the streets of Athens talking to people versus uh, supporting one's wife and kids or, well, you know, supporting one's kids and uh, being practical. That I'm, I'm uh, continue to be torn by the, the relative value of those things. Seth, closing thoughts? Closing Sorry, thoughts. Sorry, cut, cut most of that out. Mm. I'm just going gonna, gonna to change it so it just says uh, Socrates good, and then I'm going to cut out everything <laughs> after that. I, I feel very strongly that the exercise that he's advocating in this dialogue is critical, but I also feel very strongly that the ability to function effectively in the world and not be wholly unbalanced on the side of that is also important. You know, it's kind of unfortunate that the reason we looked at this particular text was because of that phrase, the unexamined life is not worth living, which lots of people know. But there are so many other dialogues where they're actually treating a specific subject that I think are so much more thought-provoking for the reader. And you well, know, Maybe we can talk about those on another podcast. No, no, I agree. I agree. I, I think <laughs> what I'm saying is that the context in this particular dialogue is that it assumes a lot and it does fire up all of these emotions in us because it's a trial and there's, there's all these other things going on. So I'm going to say Socrates, if, if Mark says bastard and Wes says good, I'm going to shrug my shoulders like an Italian, wave my hands and go, eh. <laughs> A little bit of both. All right. Here's, here's think, a real question. I think question. means I, I could care less. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to take, a, take a, a somewhat ambivalent position and say, I think there's good, I think there's bad, and uh, Which is be the, the great mediator. The real question is, did you, did you cry at the end? <laughs> no. I cried I got, because I got, was, a, I got a little teary-eyed. I cried because it was over and I wanted to read more of it. He's not a sympathetic character under any circumstances, I don't think. Even Wes, you would agree with that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, you know, I felt that. I, I didn't think he was very sympathetic, but there's something, um, and you know, Plato took this to heart and, and took it as a uh, evidence of some of the deficiencies of democracy. But there's something sad about the putting to death of, you know, Gadfly, because in a way, of course, it's it's symbolic of the putting to death of one's own doubts and clinging to you know, the state-sanctioned gods. So I don't know. I don't know how to, why why that's there's an emotional element for me there, but that there's definitely a feeling of melancholy as well. Hmm. So, well, I I have a quote here that is the best quote in here that you should use this really before you say anything in a group. And by dog, gentlemen, for I must be frank <laughs> with you, my honest impression was this. That's all. It's actually... Just, just always say that. It's often translated as by the dog. Yeah, that's what I remember it as. Common phrase well, back the then. translation yeah. I'm looking at says by dog. No, that... what? Yeah. <laughs> that's the publicly available translation. <laughs> but I think all it's right. great because it's the talk of gods and then that's the, that's the oath to swear by, by the dog. So we're going to have a website and... Uh, a uh, Facebook group for the partially examined life. So that will be a place that people can go and actually, you know, have discussions with us if we deign to look at it or with each other if we do not and, and tell us how full of crap we are. Next podcast's topic. If folks want to right now, 
start reading something to be prepared for our next discussion. Are we going to go with Descartes' meditations? Everybody okay with that? Yes. Yeah, I'm like fine to, with it, Seth. I'd like to do that. And maybe okay. we just narrow it down to the first and second. Don't, don't make okay. people think they have to read all of them. Descartes' first yeah. and second meditations. Perfect. And we'll put I, a link think... to that up on the site, theunexaminedlife.com. All right. Here's the closing music. <laughs> <laughs>